following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So at the very beginning of a new year, you probably have lots of goals. Right? You may have some professional goals, like maybe you're thinking, this is the year that I'm going after that promotion, or this is the year that I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start my own business. And those are exciting goals. Or maybe for your business, you're saying, this is the year we're going to land that big account and it's going to work and it's going to change everything. And that's exciting. Or maybe it's relational goals for you. Maybe in your family, you've decided, hey, we're going to start uh, fostering, and this is the year we're going to welcome a foster child into your home. Or maybe like my family, you're planning, this is the year we're going to have another child, and that's exciting and it's thrilling. Maybe you have financial goals as well. Maybe we've already signed up for Financial Peace University. We're going to get out of debt, or we're saving up for a big purchase, and that's thrilling. That's really exciting. And with all of those different types of goals, there are lots of different strategies that you can have to achieve those goals. Right? There are lots of ways you can go about attaining those things that you've set out in the beginning of the year. But what if there is one step that I could recommend that will not only help you in your pursuit of those goals, but that is guaranteed to provide you more satisfaction as you're pursuing those goals than anything else? And by doing this first step, you will know for certain that you have started in the right direction. That would be really enticing, wouldn't it? Well, we're going to look at a story today that I think provides that first step. It's that important for us. It helps us make sure that we're going to be not only headed in the right direction, but satisfied as we pursue that goal. So we're going to take a look at it. It's in in the book of John. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to John chapter 21. Uh, Maybe if you have a Bible app on your phone, you can jump in there. Uh, John chapter 21. Um, And this is a story. And in order for us to get in and understand what's happening, I want to set it up for you a little bit. So John is, uh, it's the last of four books called the Gospels. These are uh, accounts of Jesus' life and ministry on the earth, right? And John is the last one out of these four that was written, and is very personally written because John himself is the eyewitness. He's writing from the first-person perspective that he went through all of this, and he's now writing, telling us about what's going on. And this story is unique in that it's at the very end of John. So this is at the very end of the timeline of what's going on. See, three years before that, Jesus met these men, and he called them to be his disciples, to follow him. And then for three years, Jesus goes around and he's teaching around the world at this point. And he's going places and the blind people are receiving sight, the lame are walking, the hungry are being fed, and he's forgiving people's sins. And he's teaching unlike any way they've heard anybody teach before that. And then uh, kind of at the end of this three-year ministry, he's arrested by the temple guard. He's crucified by the Romans and he's buried. And then three days after that, he raises from the dead. And at first he meets a group of women that came to see his body, to um, take care of his body. And then he, he appears to many people and he appears to the disciples a couple of times. And today's story, where we're going to look in John 21, is actually the last time that Jesus appears to the disciples before he goes back to heaven. So it's a really interesting story. And I want to read it to you. Let's start off here in John 21. Uh, I'll start in verse 1 and it'll be up on the screens if you don't have it in front of you. Let me read it to you. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now, here's what's happening. The Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so this is, this is kind of the disciples' home turf. This is where they grew up. 
And, uh, and it, John is writing about this, and he says, and he revealed in this way. He doesn't start most of his stories or accounts like this. What he's showing us is that the way in which this happened is unique. And the way in which it happened should call to mind something else. So let's pick it up here in verse 2. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, this is a really interesting time for the disciples because they've just been called out of different professions. And for three years, they've been with Jesus in his ministry. And that's all they've been focusing on. They've been traveling and hearing Jesus teach. And God has been providing for them through that. And now that Jesus is gone... Peter is kind of turning to, okay, beforehand I was a fisherman, so um, I'm going to go back to fishing. This is what I know to do. I'm going to be able to provide. I'll be able to eat some of the fish and sell some of the fish to get some money. I'm going to go fishing. And six other guys are there, and they say, okay, yeah, we'll go fishing with you. We'll go fishing with you. So these seven guys get in the boat, and they go fishing. They fish all night long, and they catch nothing, absolutely nothing. Now, I know a little bit about this. I picked up fishing as a hobby this past year. Maybe more accurately, I picked up casting as a hobby this year. I haven't caught many fish, but I picked up casting. And it can be frustrating to be fishing all night long and catch nothing. But this, the way that it's happening, is calling to mind a different story. And if you've been around the Bible a lot, you probably remember this story. Yeah, I remember Jesus is there with the fish and the cast the net. Well, that actually happens at the very beginning of when the disciples meet Jesus. See, what we're looking at in John is at the end, but in the very beginning when the disciples meet Jesus, it happens like this. There's this crowd pressing toward the edge, toward the the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they want to hear Jesus teach. So Jesus walks up to these fishermen. There are a couple guys there. Simon Peter is there with his brother Andrew, and then also James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're all in business together. They have like Galilee Fishing LLC or something like that. Um, But they've been fishing all night long, and now they're on the shore, and they're cleaning and mending their nets, right? So they're done fishing for the day. They're exhausted, and they're cleaning and mending their nets. Jesus walks up and says, excuse me, um, I would like to be able to teach this crowd, but I need you to put your boat back in the water and take me offshore some so I can teach to them. And something happens with Peter where he says, okay. Now, mind you, this is early in the morning. He's been fishing all night long, and he hasn't had any coffee. And he's still willing to do it. I don't know why, but he does it. So he, he gets in the boat, he pushes off from the shore, and Jesus is there teaching this crowd, and Peter's sitting in the boat by him. Jesus is teaching the crowd, and then when he's done teaching, Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, Simon Peter, I want you to put the boat back out in the deep and cast your net one more time. Now, we learn a lot about Peter's character over the next three years as we hear all these stories, and we realize Peter's the kind of guy that doesn't necessarily think before he speaks, He just kind of says things, and he's kind of a rash personality. So I can imagine him sitting in the boat and just growing irritated. You ever had somebody who um, you're in your profession, you're in your field, this is what you know well, and somebody else comes in who's not in that profession, and they start to give you advice? You know how exciting that is and how pleasant that is? 
when they walk in and they start to give you advice, like, let me put it to you this way. When I first got married, um, I met my wife at the University of Florida. Go Gators. It's exciting. I know. Um, so I met my wife there. And when I met her, she was really involved in group fitness and fitness training and personal training, stuff like that. She was really involved in all that. So when we got married and we moved to a different city, she started her own personal fitness and group fitness business, right? So she was teaching in like all the gyms in the town multiple times a day. She'd be in people's homes training them specifically. She was kept up in research. Like, she really knew her stuff. And I, by the luxury of being a young man, (laughs) thought that I knew a lot of stuff as well. So I'd tell her all these fitness trends I'd find out about. Like, look, you can put this electric thing on, and just it'll give you six-packs while you're working. You don't have to do any sit-ups. And she's like, it doesn't really work that way. And I'm like, well, if you hold a 10-pound bag of rice and do three sit-ups a day in 10 weeks, you'll have a six-pack. And she's like, it doesn't really work that way. And I realized over time that I'm not really the kind of person that should be giving her fitness advice. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, I like to go to the gym. I went at least six times last year. It was incredible. Uh, I love to go to the gym. And my favorite part about the gym, I go to the YMCA, my favorite part about the gym is there's a Subway sandwich shop inside the gym. So when you walk in, you can smell the fresh break bread. And you can actually do this. You can go there and get a salami sandwich, sit in one of those bicycles with the pedals out in front of you, and watch TV while eating your salami sandwich at the gym, and that's a workout. You can actually do that. It's pretty incredible. Well, my wife goes to the gym all the time. This one time I'm going with her, and uh, she always gets on the treadmill, you know, to warm up, and then goes off and exercises. And, well, I ran in college, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to get on the treadmill. I'm going to run some. This sounds fun. So I'm on the treadmill, and I realize now I can not only be running, but watching TV. And this is exciting. So I'm on there, and I start walking, and I realize there's nothing on TV. So I set my phone up, and I like, turn on a movie on my phone, and I'm all excited about it. And I, I decide I'm going to challenge myself because, you know, I used to run in college and everything. So I turn it up to a six. I have no idea what that number means, but I know it's supposed to be fast. So I turn it up to a six, and I'm running, and I'm having a good time watching TV. I'm just thinking it's amazing. I realize my shoe's untied, so I think no problem. I step off to the sides of the treadmill, bend down, tie my shoe. I'm all ready to go and watch the movie, and I step back on the treadmill. Now, if you know anything about treadmills and you've been paying attention, this doesn't end well for me. See, the tread is moving at this breakneck speed of six, and my foot is not. And when I step on the treadmill, my foot immediately goes out behind me. And then my, I'm trying to grab onto the treadmill to gain my balance, and I'm trying to put my other foot on the treadmill, which is a great idea. And that's going out behind me as well. And as I'm doing all of that, I hit the cord to my phone. It falls down on the treadmill and shoots out and hits somebody behind me. And as I look down, I realize this tread that's moving is removing all of the skin on my leg, which is brilliant. Now, I honestly don't remember how I got out of that situation. I don't know if I blacked out and hit the treadmill and flew off or if EMS came in and helped. Like, I don't remember what happened. But I do know that pointed very clearly to me that I have no business giving a fitness expert advice on fitness, right? And that's kind of what's happening with Peter and Jesus here. Peter is a fisherman. He's been out all night long. He's caught nothing. And here is Jesus who, I don't know if Peter knows this or not, but he's a carpenter, not a fisherman. He's a carpenter, and he says, Peter, I want you to put your boat out in the deep and let down your nets one more time. So Peter's probably holding it in because he realizes this is some teacher that all these crowds are respecting. You know, I'll go ahead and do that. And he says this in Luke 5, he says this. This is his response. He says, and Simon, that's Simon Peter. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. What he's saying is, okay, Mr. Teacher, You know, I'm a fisherman. We did this all night. The fish are not getting in the nets today. We caught nothing. But you know what? 
you're so wise, we'll go ahead and put the boat out and put down the net one more time and see what happens. And what happens, if you know the story, the nets are overwhelmed with fish. It is the biggest catch of his life. And Peter is just amazed at it. It's so big, he can't pull it into his boat. He has to wave to his friends, probably James and John who are over there, and they have to bring another boat out to help bring in this net. And they say as they're putting the fish in the boats, both boats are on the verge of sinking. There are so many fish caught in this net. Like, it's remarkable. And that is Peter's introduction to Jesus. He hears him teach. His nets are overwhelmed with fish. When they get back to the shore, Jesus says, Peter, I want you to follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter leaves his fishing company and follows Jesus. And three years later, we meet him here, and John is wanting to remind us, remember how Peter met Jesus with this fishing thing. This is how it happened that Jesus appeared to him. They fished all night long, and they caught nothing. Let's jump back in. Let me read you this next part of the story right here. Verse 4, it says, And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, if you'll read in between the lines with me on this, um, Jesus and these disciples are really close. He's especially close to Peter as well. And I don't know if you have a good friend that you know how much the friend's going to enjoy the next moment. So you kind of say something and they kind of do something to, you know, just kind of poke at you or rub you the wrong way for a second, knowing how much fun you're going to have in a moment. But I kind of read this as like, maybe, Pete, maybe Jesus is messing with the disciples a little bit. He knows how frustrated Peter is. This is his first time out in three years fishing. He's fished the entire night and Jesus knows there are no fish in the boat. So he calls that, Hey, children, hey, hey children, you guys catch any fish? And the disciples are out there in the boat, and they can't tell who that is on the shore. I can't imagine how frustrated they are. It's kind of like when you call customer service and they call you honey, right? Children, have you caught any fish? And I don't know what tone the reply took, but all they said was no, 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 we don't have any fish. Jesus is probably snickering to himself a little bit, knowing what's about to happen. He says, all right, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And you'll find some fish there. Now, if you were out all night long fishing, it's kind of like the group standing by the door. You know, the door's locked. Nobody can go in. And somebody walks up to, you know, sees five people there. And you still walk up and check if the door's locked. It's like, yes, the door is locked. We're all standing here because the door, like, none of us want to go in. Well, here's, here's these disciples on the boat. They've been fishing all night long. And Jesus is like, just throw your net on the right side of the boat. And they're like, oh, the right side. We haven't tried that all night long. We haven't tried the right side. So what happens? Let's look at this in verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
This is pretty incredible. And there are so many things going on here. First, why would the disciples listen to a stranger? They have no idea who this is on the shore. Why would they listen to him and throw their net back on the right side of the boat? I don't know why, but they do. And look what happens. They catch either the largest or second largest catch of their life. It says that they could not bring the net into the boat because of the quantity of fish. Later it says 153 large fish. Now here's the deal. This isn't like a commercial um, commercial outfit like you'd see today where they have these huge booms and mechanics to bring in these giant nets. These are hand-sewn and hand-thrown nets that they're back-breaking work to bring them in the, in the boat. And 153 fish is a giant catch for these men. And they're struggling to bring all of these fish in. And what does Peter do? As soon as Peter hears that it's Jesus, he puts on his cloak and threw himself into the sea. He jumped in the water. He didn't want to wait. He wanted to swim over and see Jesus. Now, it says they're about 100 yards off. Now, 100 yards is a good swim. 100 yards fully clothed is a really good swim. But it didn't matter to Peter. He said, I'm getting in there and I'm swimming over there. And think about this for a second. There are seven guys in the boat, right? Peter and James and John are all in there. Those three have fishing experience. The other guys, probably no fishing experience. And here you see these seven guys have worked the entire night, and God did in one cast, in one quick moment, what they couldn't do the entire night. God overwhelmed their business in one little moment, one little moment more than they could muster up in the entire night. And Peter, he left the catch. In this, moment, in this moment, you see Peter leaving these fish with the unexperienced men and two other experienced men, jumps out of the boat to go over to Jesus, and they have to drag this net in the water over to the shore because they can't get it in the boat. It's so full of Jesus. It's just overwhelming. And then I kind of want to think when Peter gets to the shore and he gets there and Jesus is there and he's got the charcoal fire, and you know, they're all excited. Maybe they're hugging each other. Oh, it's so good to see you. And Jesus, you already have fish? And I can imagine Jesus, you know, being kind of playful and being like, oh, did you catch some fish last night? Oh, that's great. Why don't you bring some of your fish over too? You know, let's eat those too. But here's Jesus. He has a meal prepared for them with fish and bread and a fire to warm them right there on the shore. And Peter jumps in, swims over, and is excited to see this. And now when you read this story, sometimes when I read it, I'm overwhelmed by something. Not necessarily overwhelmed by how Jesus in just a moment can be so much more productive than you can be in an entire night's work. And not only overwhelmed at the grace of God to, do, to give them that many fish and to feed them, but on the fact that Peter threw himself into the sea. Peter knew exactly what he wanted and had nothing to do with the fish. He wanted to be with Jesus. He swam hard after Jesus. That was his goal. He realized the goal wasn't to get more fish and to sell them. He wanted to swim hard after Jesus. And sometimes I have to ask myself, when we get in these situations, we have to ask ourselves, do we want what Jesus can do for us, or do we really want Jesus? Is our heart really like Peter in that moment? Do we want to throw ourselves back into the sea to go to um, Jesus, or do we want to get back in the boat and push it back out to shore? You know, maybe you saw this in Christmas last week. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm going to have a fourth this summer, so I've got three kids opening gifts this past Christmas. I've got a six-year-old, uh, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And on Christmas morning, um, we struck gold with the first gift with the two-year-old, apparently. And he opens the gift, and he's all excited about the airplanes that he gets to play with. And he's all excited. He comes back around. We hand him a second gift. He says, no, I play with airplanes. I'm like, 
Okay, all right. Yeah, so the morning keeps going on. About 20 minutes later, hey, James, you want to open another gift? No, I play with this with airplane. And we're like, oh, okay, all right. So I don't know what we're going to do with the rest of the gifts, but he's really excited with, about this. Well, Christmas night comes around, and we get together with my family, and there are 20-plus people there at my parents' house and my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews, and, and they're all excited there. And at the end of the night, typically a couple uncles will take the gifts and hand them out to everybody. And there are my older two. Um, and if you've ever been at a big family celebration at Christmas like this, you know what happens next when all the presents are handed out. It looks a little bit more like a riot than a Hallmark movie, right? Everybody just starts tearing open presents, and once the first wrapping's off, like, it's just mayhem. Everybody's tearing open, and you see kids get all excited about it and, like, open up. Oh, yeah, it's Legos. This is so much fun. And, oh, all right, it's closed. That's not as much fun. And then they tear open another one. Oh, this one's yours. Sorry. And, like, they just keep going through and opening more and more presents. And then afterwards, there's almost this letdown of all the presents have been opened, and there's nothing more to open. And I think oftentimes we do that when we experience God. But hopefully as we mature... When we experience Christmas, I'd like to think it's a little bit more like this, that we receive a gift and we open it and we're so thankful that somebody in in a relationship with us has listened to what we like or want and has got us something. Like, that's so nice. Or maybe even better, they veered off your list. It's something that you had not expressed desire in, but they know because of your relationship. But when they saw this, that they knew how much you would enjoy it. So they got it for you. And as you open that gift, you're not only thankful for the gift, but you're also overwhelmed with the fact that because of this relationship, they know you, they understand you, they know what you want, and they gifted it to you in this gift. And I think God is similar to the last story where he knows what you want and he wants to bless you. But sometimes we get so excited about opening the gifts, about seeing all the benefits of knowing God in our life, that instead of slowing down and realizing that God is giving them to us, we get caught up with all the blessings. So I think what God does sometimes is he slows down to help you understand what you need is you need a relationship with me. You don't need the benefits. You don't need the blessings. You don't need the gifts. What you need is a relationship with me instead. See, what happens if you've been uh, fortunate enough to have a friend maybe all of your life or a long span in life, what happens with these really close relationships is we're all wired for relationships and for community and being together with people. And you get this close friend and you spend a lot of time together. You really enjoy each other's company. And then something happens in life where one of you gets really busy or maybe you both get really busy and getting together is a lot harder than it used to be. So you can't get together as often. Or maybe, um, maybe one of you, because of family or work, you have to move. And when you move, now there's distance between you, so you can't spend as much time together, and that friendship isn't what it once was. Or maybe even worse than that is you enter into different life stages. And now you can't spend as much time together because either one person is advanced in their career beyond the other, so you can't afford to hang out as much. Or maybe your kids are varying ages, so it's not as much fun to get together. And because your life stages have changed, uh, it's harder to get together. And you don't necessarily lose the friend. You just can't spend as much time with that friend. But what God knows is what we need more than other human relationships is we need a relationship with him. Because we need a relationship with him because there's never a time where he's too busy that he can't meet with us. And there's never a time in, with God where he moves into a different category where now it's awkward for us to hang out together or for us to spend time together. And there's never a time where he has to move further away so that you can't immediately access him and enjoy that relationship. 
And there's no season of life that you can experience that he can't partner with you and understand and speak into and be close to you in. Because he understands that you need him more than anything. You need a connection with Jesus more than anything. So here's what I'd challenge you to do in 2017. Here's what you should do. This is the first step for you. Throw yourself into the sea. This is the first step. Throw yourself into the sea. Realize that God has done so much for you, that he's blessed you, but realize it's not about that blessing. It's about pursuing after Jesus. So throw yourself into the sea and swim hard after Jesus. Pursue him. Pursue that relational time with him. Here's what that can look like. This week, it's the first week of 2017. It's a great week to do it. Here's what you can do. Today, on your way home, pick up a journal. Go by the store, go by a bookstore, pick up a journal. Maybe it's just even a pad of paper. And sit down and spend some time just on that first page writing down all of the things you've seen God do in your life this past year. Write down the ways that he has restored relationships or write down the ways that he's given you peace about different things that have happened. Write down so many of the benefits or so many of the relationships that he's included for you. Write down the ways that you've seen God be real in your life just this past year. And as you do that, what's going to well up in you is this sense of thankfulness and a sense of joy and a desire to praise God and to thank him for the ways that he has interacted with you and the ways that he's grown you. And maybe if writing's not your thing, maybe you decide to sit down with your spouse one night. This is December, it's, or it's January now. It's the most beautiful time of year to live in Florida. Maybe after the kids go to bed one night this week, you and your spouse sit down on the back patio and you just you share with each other how you've seen God show up in your family this year. You've seen how he's molded or created character in your kids. You've seen how he's provided for you financially. You've seen how he's given you different desires or how he's grown you in love together. And you can share these moments with each other. And that's going to well up not only a, a thankfulness toward God, but a joy toward each other as well. Or maybe you call up some friends and you get together this week for dinner or for coffee and just the three or four of you sit down and you talk through how you've seen God in each other's lives this year. And that same thing's going to happen. You're going to be overwhelmed with the excitement and the joy and the thankfulness and God is going to grow your faith in him as you look at everything God has done and you start to praise him and thank him and understand more of his character. Man, what a great first step. As you do that, as you read the Bible this year, maybe you're not reading it to try and figure out what you should do next, but you're reading it to find out what God did there and what he's like. You know, for me, this happened this past year. Uh, getting close to summer, my wife and I were talking, and we've been blessed to grow up in Christian homes, and we've been around the Bible our entire lives, and we've read it and studied it and love it. And you know, typically when you read the Bible, you read shorter chunks, and you read maybe a paragraph or a few lines, and you think through, okay, what does this mean for me, or what should I do now, and how do I respond to this? But we realize, when's the last time we really sat down and just read through all of Scripture? So we decided to do that. It took about an hour a day, and for seven weeks, we read cover to cover the entire Bible, and this amazing thing happened. The more we read, the less we thought about what we should do, and the more we realized what God has done. The more we read, the more we realized more about who God is and how he has worked his way through human history and orchestrated things in human history and all through Scripture to put together this incredible plan that now exists and has impact in our lives. 
And I'd encourage you, as you think about God, as you think about everything he's done in your life and through scripture, just stop and stop thinking about what you need to do next or what you want to get from God, but start focusing on who God is. And in moments in life when I feel like maybe I'm focusing more on what I can get out of Jesus rather than who Jesus is, I start to ask myself some questions, some diagnostic questions just to help me understand where I'm at. And I ask questions like this. I ask, do I only go to Jesus when, when I need something? Do I only go to him whenever there's something that I'm feeling like I need? God, I need your help with this. God, I, I need you to help me understand, is this the right decision? God, I need you to make this work. I need a good grade on this test. Or maybe when you pray, do you pray just about what's coming up next for you? Or do you pray realizing you're spending time with God? Because if you're just praying to God about the things that you need in your life, you're missing the point of prayer. Prayer is not just being able to go to God and tell him what you need next. It's about spending time with God and telling him how much you love him and what you're thankful for. And then I asked this other question. This one may be the hardest of all of them. When things don't go how I want, do I feel like God has failed? Do I treat all of the things that I do, all of the time that I spend reading the Bible or going to church or getting involved, being in a community group or serving, do I treat all of that like a down payment so that later when things, I need something to happen, it'll happen. And when it doesn't happen, I feel like God has failed. Like God, I've put in all this time and now this isn't happening. Like, how could you let that happen? What happened? You know, God, I've worked so hard. I've been so busy at church. I've spent so much time reading my Bible and praying this year. How could you let me get fired? Like, where were you? Has God failed on that moment? Or maybe you start to realize it's not that God failed, but that my expectations of what I wanted are different than what God wants for me. You know, as you start to ask those questions, you start to realize it's not as much about the goal as it is about being with Jesus. And this is, church, this is what I desperately want for you. I want you to spend time in a relationship with Jesus, not because of what he can do for you, but because of who he is. And I know as you do that, you will be more satisfied in the pursuit of your goals and in your relationship with God than anything else that you could ever experience. I know that as you pursue God in your life for that relationship, you'll be more confident whether you succeed or fail at whatever you plan to do in 2017. And I know that as you do that, as you pursue God and draw close to him, that you will be confident that you're starting in the right direction because you know that God is with you the entire way. And no matter what happens, you still have a relationship with God. You know, this past summer, we saw some of the world's best athletes compete in the Olympics in Brazil. And we saw all of these people who have honed their bodies and mind to accomplish a task or a feat, who just performed to their best of their ability and compete internationally in Brazil. And we're told that right after the Olympics, there's a big wave of depression that sweeps over the Olympic Village because so many of these people come in and everything they've worked hard for for the last four years, or maybe more, everything they've worked hard for, they realize at the end of the games, that high point is behind me. Everything I've worked hard for is over and done. The crescendo of my career is behind me, and this wave of depression sweeps over them. But if you watch the games, there was a diver who came back this year, and it was his third Olympic appearance. In 2008, he competed and did horribly. 
It was really bad. And in 2012, he came back in London and won a gold and a bronze medal. He was really excited. And this year, he came back in 2016. He came back with a partner named Steel, which, by the way, is a really cool name, right? Steel, that's a pretty awesome name. So he came back, and he competed in diving. And uh, they interviewed him right at the end of the event. He's standing by the side of the pool with his partner. And um, the other team, his main competition, just sealed the gold in the pool behind him. So that means they are locked in at silver. And this news reporter is asking me, he says, you know, David, you have now won a gold, a silver, and a bronze in Olympic events. You just secured the silver. How does it feel to win like this. And I want to read you what he said. This is what he said in the interview. I asked him, how does it feel to win? And he said, you know, I think the past week here has just, it's been an enormous amount of pressure and I've felt it. It's just an identity crisis. When my mind is focused on this, on this diving event, my mind goes crazy. But we both, meaning him and Seal, we both know that our identity is in Christ and we're thankful for this opportunity to dive in front of Brazil and the United States. And then the reporter turns to Steele. She says, Steele, this is your first Olympic debut. This is the first time you've ever competed in the Olympics. How did you remain so calm? And he said a lot of things David said, but he said this. He said, my identity is in Jesus Christ and not my performance in this event. If it goes well, we're excited. If it doesn't, we still have joy in knowing our identity is in Jesus. See, that's what I want for you. I want you to know Jesus in a way that it doesn't matter whether you reach those goals or not. If you get them, that's awesome. That's exciting. And that can be great and godly goals. But ultimately, your identity, your relationship is with Jesus. And it's not about winning or losing. It's about drawing closer to Jesus. And as you do that, the successes and failures in life just become the details. They don't become the big picture and they don't become the goal. They're just the details in life. And church, that's what I want you to do. That's why this week I hope that you will pick up a journal and you'll spend time just writing out and thinking through how God has shown up in your life so that you can thank him and you can dwell on him. I pray this week that as you read scripture that you won't read for what you should do next, but you read for who God is and what you can learn about him from this passage. And as you get together with your spouse or your friends and you share what God has done in your life, I pray that you are overwhelmed with joy as you're reminded about what God has done in your life and who he has been to you personally. And if you don't have that relationship with Jesus yet, this is what I'd invite you to do. I'd talk to the person who brought you today. Talk to him and say, I don't have that relationship. I want to know what that's like. How do I do that? And have that conversation. And if nobody brought you, you've been coming for a while and there's nobody in particular, come find me right afterwards. I would love to talk to you. I'll be in the back. I'd love to talk to you and share with you about that. But church, this is what I want you to do. I, I so desperately want you to throw yourself in the sea, to swim hard after Jesus, not for the benefits that you can get, but just for the connection that you can have with the creator and sustainer and the author of your faith. So let me do this. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be able to sing in a moment. But first, let me pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. And God, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity to have a relationship with you and to pursue you. And God, you are so gracious that you give us an entire new year to pursue you with our life and to swim hard after you. And God, I pray that as we do that, that you would help us understand who you are. God, I pray that you'd fill us with thankfulness to you. And I pray that you'd fill us with a confidence that only comes through knowing you and knowing that we are connected with you. 
And Lord, as we do this, I pray that you would draw us closer to you so we can have a better year than we've ever had because we know you, because we can pray to you, because we realize your character and how you have moved so strongly in our lives. Lord, we love you. Love you. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.